0: We're getting started here in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, so if y'all want to go ahead and just turn there, it's going to be a little bit shorter of a section this week, but there's a lot in there. <laughs> so before we read it, well, actually, let's go ahead and read it. Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. So, I kind of want to start out with just saying that there are a couple of Greek myths that are going to go kind of well with these verses. But the first one kind of tells of just a goddess that's, you know, seen on, or, you know, is not seen on earth, but comes to earth and walks unseen. But as she walks across, her blessings and presence are felt. She walks across dead farmland, it springs to life, bringing forth grass fruit trees, wheat. She touches stagnant pools, and it becomes fresh, clear water. And then there's another story of a princess that is given to a king as a bride. She was so beautiful. She rivaled Aphrodite. Her voice was so sweet that even the birds were jealous of her. But this came at a cost. From infancy, she had been stowed away, and she had been fed nothing but rotten, poisoned food, and had done nothing but foul air. This left her with an aura of death and decay around her, so much so that her very breath could kill swarms of insects, and if birds flew too close to her, they would fall out of the sky dead. So that kind of brings to me, this, that kind of, this whole thing, this whole illustration, brings me to that first point, which is no man is an island. Influence is the question of this passage. Oh. And the two stories. Human influence. It's how we affect others. It's how we affect the world around us. We cannot escape this we always have an effect on someone or something. There is no tiny corner of creation or anywhere that we can go, that we can hide ourselves from someone or something else. That's what uh, led the author John Donne to write that no man is an island unto himself. Therefore, we cannot stop either being an influencer or influenced by something else. So, all we can do is decide what kind of influence we're going to be. Are we going to be an influence for good and bring forth life, like the goddess, or are we going to be an influence for evil and bring forth death, like the princess? But also, we need to decide if we're going to be a direct or an indirect influence. Direct influences are ones that come off of what we do, or or not what we do, what we say. Meaning I can say, hey, let's not do that. Let's not look at that. And their behavior changes accordingly. An indirect influence is what is basically someone following my example. I choose not to associate with a particular group or Partake in a particular activity, and they decide they don't want to either. So, here's the thing in this passage, Christ calls us to do both. We're to be both an indirect and direct influence. So, that's going to bring me to my first, my second point here, which is the direct and indirect. You are the, and the verses here are, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In this verse and a half, we see the call to be both direct and an indirect influence. Salt was an important commodity in the ancient world. Roman soldiers were paid on the stuff. Essentially, that's where we get the phrase, worth your salt. Mm. And in many cultures, it was also used as a sign of friendship or at least truce. Because if your worst enemy was to share bread and salt with you or to eat of your bread and salt, you were to treat them as a friend and in some cases a guest. And this was an inviolable principle. It was the height of dishonor. So, there there have been many interpretations to what exactly the salt is here. Uh, Some look at it and say that since salt is normally white, it has to be moral purity. And that Christians are called to be pure in heart, and that's just a reference back to verse 8. Others, and that are. our white moral purity is to contrast with um, with the moral blackness of the world that is around us. And we are to exemplify God's divine standards of righteousness in our thoughts, deeds, and words. And we are to remain unstained by the world, as James says in James 1. And while all of this, of course, is a true statement, like we are supposed to do these things, we are supposed to stand against the world, we are supposed to stand out against it, Um, if you look at the latter half of verse 13, where it talks about the taste, we can see that it's not the color that is the issue. It is the saltiness that is the issue. So that's lacking a little bit. This, therefore, leads to some going, okay, well, if we are to be salty, you know, if we are supposed to have the characteristic of flavor that salt has, then that means we are to be, um, then that means we are to provide a divine flavor for the world. Just as some foods become bland, tasteless, like, you know, you eat something and you go, need salt you almost know immediately that that's what it needs. Well, we're to do the same thing for the world around us. And the world can then take on that same kind of drab, tasteless appearance that, you know, for God, if we are lacking. So, even, you know, and some take this principle to the extreme and basically say that, Christians have absolutely no business being boring. (laughs) And, um, well, you know, they are to add flavor and excitement to the world because Christians are God's means of blessing mankind just as he sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous alike. Again, there's a partial truth there. But the problem with that one is, is that even from the foundings of the early church, Christians have been found to be boring, (laughs) you know, and I know, you know, we're big fans of the Puritans here, but everything you read about them doesn't sound like they had a lot of fun either, (laughs) so, but that's not necessarily, again, like I said, that's true, you know, because a unbelieving marriage partner can be sanctified by their spouse as it says in uh, 1 Corinthians. But, and if we look at Genesis, we see that God was willing to spare Sodom if he could find, if there were 10 righteous people in the city. Well, I don't know how that turned out. <clears throat> Found, you know, one at least. <laughs> so, again, that, that, one is still consider, that one is still found to be a little lacking. But there is another characteristic of salt that we use, or that we have. And that characteristic is that it is used to preserve food. And in the case of the ancient Egyptians, that's what they'd use to mummify. Get a big old vat, and then they just throw the pharaoh in there and leave him there for a couple days. So, that means that Christians, as children of God, and temples of his Holy Spirit, we are to slow, we help slow spiritual and moral spoilage. Because the world just, you know, it's been getting worse since Genesis 3. And the righteous have been there to try And at least hold it at bay. We're not trying to stop it. We can't do that. But we're trying to slow it down. So, that means that we are to live as examples for others. Uh, Now, R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, he's got a little section where um, where, where he talks about the way people act differently around him because he is a minister. And, you know, they will apologize for swearing in front of him. You know, oh, sorry, pastor, didn't mean to say that. Um, Or they'll stop mid-joke because they're thinking about it, and they're like, oh, he's not going to like this one. Um, And essentially just kind of like this whole idea of being a Christian, and especially a Christian minister, just essentially he is just major buzzkill. (laughs) But... And he's kind of sitting there and talking about how that's kind of a bad thing because he's like, look, I'm, I'm just like you. I've said those things. I've thought those things. I've told those jokes. So, you know, you don't have to hide them around me. But I'm kind of sitting there going like, well, it's not necessarily a bad thing that they stop. I mean, if their only reason is because they don't want to be judged by the minister for what they're saying, then I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe you're not in the right place. But if that leads to an eventual behavior change being like, oh, I don't say these things anymore because I'm always around R.C. Sproul or I'm always around Denton or I'm around Robert. You know, and then you sit there and go, well, and then they sit there and go, well, maybe I don't need to say these things. Maybe i have got other ways, you know, there, there are other jokes that I can tell. There are other ways that I can word my frustration. That right there is an example of being an indirect influence through being salt. So, that brings us to, we are the light of the world. Well, what is that? What, what, what light are we called to be? Well, in most cases, well, the obvious answer to that question is that we are meant to be God's light. So then that leads to the question of, what is God's light? Well, if we look at Psalm 36, 9, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. And John really, really spreads it out in 1 John 1, 5 through 7. He says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. The God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, while well, yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light and he, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. So we can see that this light is given to walk and live by. And what, excuse me, and as Christians, what are we called to walk and live by? Scripture, right? That is what we are to study. That is what we are to emulate. That is what we are to preach. Well, then that means that, therefore, God's light is the full revelation of his word, both in the written word of Scripture, the Bible that we carry with us every day, and in the living word that is Christ, that became flesh to be a propitiation for us. So, Just as Luke 179 says that Christ came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace, we too are to proclaim God's word and light into a world shrouded in darkness. We are are the reflections of Christ's true light. So, before... He sheds his light onto the world. He gave it to us. Or, excuse me. He sheds his light on the world through those who have received his light, which is us, true believers. And by this, we know that by light's very definition, it must be visible to be effective. So, Light, therefore, is a direct influence on everything around us. So, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. By day, its houses stand out against the landscape, for there's nothing else around it. You see it, it's right there. And then at night, lights are to shine from the windows and the streets so that they stand out stark against the background of darkness that is around it. Mankind was not given the gospel to keep it a secret treasure, known only to the elect, only to a few, but to share it with all men, whether they reject it or not. We are called to share this light that we have been given. Therefore, true Christians are to subtly live out this gospel as salt through our actions, through what we do and what we don't do, and also we are told and we are also called to boldly proclaim it as the blinding lights of Christ but we also now come to a problem and we also have the reason the problem comes in 13 and 15 But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So, this is the warning. So, let me pull this out a little bit there are patches in salt you know there are patches of salt like in palestine at the time that and especially around the dead sea that they are so contaminated these these patches are so contaminated with gypsum and other minerals that they're just it's disgusting you know it's flat at best meaning it's kind of got a little bit of salt in it but not enough for how much you have and in other cases, it's just inedible and you can't touch it. So, what would you know what, what do you do with a batch like that when you find it in your house? Well, you throw it out. Well, you can't throw it out, you know, on the field or in the garden, well, because the salt that's there will kill what's growing. You have to throw it out on the street where it doesn't do any harm, it's trampled, ground up, and eventually disappears. So But in this case, Christ isn't talking about, isn't threatening a loss of salvation. No, that's not the case. We all know that you can't do that. You know. We all know that he will hold us to the end. We will persevere. We've got that. Now, this is a warning against allowing the world and allowing sin to corrupt our very influence. So that we are no longer the influencers, but we are now the influenced. Essentially, it's the danger of becoming a hypocrite, becoming like the Pharisees and the scribes. We cannot influence purity. We cannot have an influence on other people's purity if we have compromised our own. We cannot preserve the world from corruption if we have been corrupted to the very core, minus that little bit that still holds to God. At that point, We haven't lost our salvation. We have just become useless. And we have disqualified ourselves from service, as Paul warns the Corinthian church. So, light also has its own dangers. As we've said, you know, light has to be visible to be effective. Well, no matter how bright the light, you can usually find something to cover it up, to make it at least less bothersome to you personally. Um, Well, it's still a light at that point. Like, it's still a light. You still have it, but it doesn't help you. It's useless to you. You can't read by it doesn't help you see you to go through the house at night It's completely covered. So again you have disqualified yourself in that service and we can we can cover that light in a you know number of ways. We can cover it because we're afraid to offend That's a big one nowadays. Oh can't sing. Can't say that we, we can't call people out on that. You know, it's just them being them. It's like, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> you know, we all know that. Or um, you can also um, cover it because of just direct sin. You know, you're you are just in, you know in a backslidden season happens to everybody, uh-oh. but the light is still covered, and you are still at least temporarily disqualified. So I'm just going to stop here for a second, because in this last verse, like I'm sure Denton and Robert can, can kind of attest to this, but I, just, I love it when a passage has its own like application passage just built into it. <laughs> it's great, because <laughs> then all I have to do is expound on it a little bit, and the, there, there's the application. Um, So, here it is. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, the Greek word here, kalos, that they use for good, doesn't imply, essentially, the quality of work. Like, it's not a good work because you did it well. It is the appearance of work, of the work, like it's a beautiful work. Well, as I said in the previous point, that we are reflections of Christ's light. Therefore, the light is not ours. We can still cover it up, but the light is actually God's beauty and truth shining through us through the action of redemption. Thus, it should be our goal to give all glory and all honor to him out of anything produced by that light because it is not ours. (laughs) This should not only be what we do, this should be our preoccupation. We should want to do that. For if in all things we glorify God. Well, the world won't have any other choice but do it, to do it with us. So, I know this one's a little bit shorter, but um, that's all I've got. want to pray with me?